Welcome to Business Unmuted and thanks to our sponsor Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers representing some of the world's best manufacturers of cars, vans and motorcycles. Check out its website on virtuemotors.com. I'm Graeme Robb, I've owned my firm, Recognition PR, for 35 years. We've got 75 clients in lots of sectors across the UK. They have a turnover of 6 billion and employ around 30,000 people. So we're at the front line of the business community and perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate, which we're going to do today. In the studio, we've got Martin Lemon, CEO, Martin Anderson, CEO of Lemon Contact Centres, uh, multi-platform contact centres based in the northeast in Stockton. And he has clients in lots of different sectors across the UK, answering their phones and servicing their needs. Down the line, we're joined by independent economist Julian Jessup, who has more than three decades of experience dealing with economic data. He's a regular on TV and radio, one of the UK's most respected economists. And we're also joined by Andy Crawford, director of Business Moves Group, which is supporting several big name brands with workplace moves. Gents, welcome to our programme today. Julian, let's start with you. Uh, we've had a lot of economic commentary in the news. It's right up there in the headlines, the starting point being the IMF report saying that the UK economy is a basket case. It's going to be shrinking compared to our peer group economies. Do you buy it? Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't think the IMF has a great track record in, in forecasting. A lot of the assumptions on which it seems to be basing its numbers are already looking out of date, you know, the outlook for interest rates and, and energy prices in particular. Uh, and, and the final point is that I don't think its forecasts really add up anyway. Um, it's become more pessimistic about the UK, while at the same time being more optimistic about almost everywhere else. So there seems to be a bit of a bit of a disconnect there. One of the, the team doing the UK numbers aren't talking to the others. Um, I suspect that we will be obviously facing a very difficult period this year, but but no worse than many other economies, you know, particularly the likes of, of, of Germany that is you know, teetering on the brink of recession. And actually, some of the recent economic data from the US has been pretty appalling as well. So um, I don't think we'll have a great year, but I, I don't see any great reason to think we're going to be doing a lot worse than some of our peers. I suppose because this week was the third anniversary of actually leaving the EU, Brexit Day, 31st of January, there was a lot of Brexit blaming going around in the national commentariat. I, I don't think you're one of the people who blames Brexit, but can you understand why people would be concerned that Brexit uh, destroyed our ability to trade with Europe on very straightforward paperless grounds? Yeah, no, I, I think there are reasons to be worried here. I mean, I'm a I'm a Brexit supporter, I'm an optimist about what the longer term benefits might be. But even I recognise that in the, the short term, the economic impact has been negative. I and mean, obviously, if you, the main thing that we've done is increase barriers to trade with our, our biggest single trading partner. We've made it you know, more difficult to, uh, to attract labour from, from the rest of the uh, European continent. Uh, we damaged business investment and we, we probably deterred a lot of people from uh, buying UK assets. So I think the initial impact has undoubtedly been negative. But where I dis disagree with the consensus is how big a negative it has been. And just as importantly, maybe more importantly, how long this, this negative impact is going to last. I think a lot of it is to do with uncertainty, you know, the amount of time it takes businesses to adjust. And there's still big, some big aspects of Brexit haven't been done yet. So fixing the, the Northern Ireland protocol. So um, I think, I mean, hopefully... <laughs> darkest before the dawn and from now on you know the the news on brexit will start to improve i i've just a, a view from from the north where i am i actually was one of those people in business 
I was chairman of the IOD in the North East at the time of the Brexit vote, and I was a Remainer as a result of that. But I'm one of the few people who's come round to some of this stuff. Mm. Um, we've got a free port in Teesside, which is attracting a lot of interest. Uh, I'm on the board of the development corporation there for, for full disclosure. And also, um, our big uh, project in the energy sector is the offshore wind project. And the government took a, an unusual position uh, to defend sovereign capacity by requiring the big developers of offshore wind to have 60% uh, produced uh, of the the capital and and of the the servicing of the wind farms, be British based. Now that would be illegal under EU rules to be so prescriptive. So there are some tangible benefits that in the Teesside area we're starting to see. Um, maybe they're difficult to see if you're taking a moralistic view of the uh, UK economy. Well, we're starting to see benefits in in other areas as well. So if you look at regulation, for example, you know, deregulation was a big theme of Brexit. And um, we're starting to see some good progress there in areas like financial services and other sort of big cutting edge areas like biotechnology, where we could probably regulate things a lot better than the European Union does. Um, and then other areas as well, things like now we're outside the common agricultural policy, we can have a you know, sensible regime of, of farming subsidies that you know, actually better for consumers, but also better for the environment. So some of the benefits on the regulation side are starting to come through. Uh, and we're finally starting to do our own, you know, new free trade deals with countries like Australia and New Zealand. Now, obviously, they're pretty small in the bigger scheme of things, but I think that's only just the start. And we will be able in due course to have better trade deals with with, with the US, with you know, faster growing emerging economies like, like China and India. So there's plenty of potential there. Uh, my one concern, though, is whether this government or any future government is really willing to you know, take some of the political flack that might be generated by lowering barriers to trade and you know, reverting to a more sort of open economy than we've had for many years. OK, well, we could go down the Brexit debate for a long time, so I'll move back on to the economy in general. Uh, the inflation rate uh, tweaked down in the latest data, but it's still too high. And uh, tomorrow, uh, that is Thursday for people watching this over the weekend, um, the Bank of England will be setting rates again. Um, I'd be interested in your point of view, but just to report back, the North East has a shadow MPC made up of businesses and run by an accountancy firm and my own PR firm. And the shadow MPC, in conjunction with the Northern Echo, uh, came to the conclusion by only one vote that rates should go up. And they said if they go up half a point, uh, half a percent rather, 50 basis points, and conditionally pause them, which I understand the Bank of Canada did. Now, that, that's what people on the ground in the northeast thought, marginally, by one, one vote. What, what's your view? If you were on the real MPC, what would you say? Well, for, for what it's worth, my vote would be for, for one final half-point increase, taking interest rates to 4%, but then pausing. Uh, indeed, it wouldn't surprise me if the next move in interest rates after that is, is down. Now, um, there, there, the key point here, of course, is what happens to, to inflation. But I think there are three big reasons to expect um, inflation to, to fall quite sharply this year without the need for further rate increases. Um, one is the, the economy, of course, itself is is weakening. So the sort of you know demand pull pressures on inflation not as strong as they used to be. Um, the second is on the on the cost side. So things like global commodity prices have peaked, energy prices, wholesale prices at least are falling quite sharply, and a lot of the supply side disruptions are, are fading. Uh, and then the third point 
um, which might sound a bit geeky, but I think is arguably the most important of the three, is that the monetary drivers of inflation are changing. So, you know, I take the view that inflation is ultimately caused by too much money chasing too few goods and services. But one thing that's happened recently is that the growth of the amount of money in the economy has fallen very, very sharply. So there's less money around than there was before. And that should mean that inflation drops off pretty sharply in the next year or two. Well, that's a, a positive outlook from you. And um, if, if interest rates do uh, get a rise, as you suggest tomorrow, you talked about uh, pausing, but should the bank send a forward signal? I, I'm not, I, I was talking to someone who is involved in the Bank of England a, a few weeks ago, and they were saying that they got into a lot of trouble with what they described as forward guidance a couple yeah. of months before, in the last year with Mark Carney before he left. Should it try forward guidance again with this conditional pause? Yeah, I, I think there's a danger of being too explicit. And I think if I remember right, what Mark Carney said is that, you know, we would change interest rate policy if unemployment hit a certain level. And in the event, people were surprised about how quickly unemployment moved. And so they then had to sort of rethink what their guidance is. Mm. I, I think often this is a case of, you know, less is, is, is better. I think it's better to say less about the exact conditions on which you would change interest rates again. Um, I think the important thing is to signal that you are pausing for a period. Mm. Uh, and I think that'd be really reassuring. In, in particular, I think it would mean that, you know, some of the pressure would come off mortgage rates. So when people talk about the you know, Bank of England raising rates and that being bad for the mortgage market, what really matters is not where interest rates are now or even where they are at the end of this week, but where they're expected to go. Mm. So if the Bank of England can signal that interest rates are, uh, have peaked, at least for now, then mortgage rates could actually fall because they depend on where people think interest rates are going to be in two or five years time. So I think that that could be quite a powerful thing to do. So it's a fascinating hand, thing. And of course, the, yeah. these rates have to catch up. And if the bank keeps pushing it up and up and up, they don't get a chance to catch up, do they? Because so many are on fixed rates. I remember when I bought my first house, an interest rate change would be reflected immediately in the mortgage well, rate. That's a, that's a very good point, because that means a lot of the interest rate increases we've, we've had already from the Bank of England haven't actually impacted the economy because people are still paying their old fixed rates. So there, there is a danger that if the bank continued raising interest rates you know, beyond this week, then you know, it's like pulling a, pulling a brick with a rubber band. You know, nothing will happen for a while, then suddenly the brick will whack you in the face. So I think there's a, there's a good case for pausing now just to see what the full impact of the past increases are going to be on the mortgage market and, and the housing market more generally. Very good point. And the last point, I've, I've dominated you because you, you are a great speaker on these matters and I wanted to hear a lot what you had to say. But the last thing, you mentioned unemployment in that last uh, answer about interest rates. The Yorkshire Post was running a report from the Centre for Cities where there was a challenge on what the true jobless rate is. Um, is it uh, 4%, 4.5% or is it really up there at... 10 to 15 percent when you take into account people who are not working but uh, could work yeah I, I think that some of the headlines here are a bit misleading they're talking about you know what the true level of unemployment is but the point is you can define unemployment in in different ways so um i personally think that the true numbers are the lower numbers 
So if somebody is is not looking for work, then I personally don't regard them as as unemployed. Um, but there is a a bigger problem in the background that there are probably too many people who are what are described perhaps unfairly as economically inactive. So they are not in work and and not looking for work. But potentially they could be tempted back into employment, and as a particular issue uh, amongst the over fifties, who one reason or another have, have dropped out of work over the last few years, and you know don't necessarily want to to come back again anytime soon. If if we could encourage those hundreds of thousands of people as they are back into work, that could provide quite a big boost to growth. But dis- to describe them as unemployed because of choices they freely made, I don't think is, is an accurate description of what's going on. All right, Julian, hold on there. We're going to talk to our other guests for a few minutes. We'll come back to you to wrap at the, at the end. Uh, first of all, let's bring Andy Crawford in from uh, Business uh, Moves Group. Uh, now, you move businesses. You literally move them like removal company, but it's a lot more complex, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot more complex than that. Uh, I mean, we've, we've got the, the issue with remote workers at the moment and and uh, trying to get the business is trying to get these remote workers back into the office um energy costs are, are an issue obviously if you're working at home you're using approximately 75 percent more gas over the winter periods and 25 percent more electricity now that's not caused a mass rush back into the office environment for the majority of our clients Still looking at you know numbers of twenty five to thirty percent of occupation levels in all of their buildings, um, you know rising energy bills may eventually be the catalyst that sparks a return to the office, um, but it's you know very superficial to tell employees to come back to the office so that you don't have to pay for heating. What life balance is something that you know a remote worker is far more important to a remote worker than paying for additional heating costs. So we have the complications of all of that as well as everything else that we're dealing with in the economy regards office moving. So all of these all these factors are presumably feeding into you being quite busy moving offices around. Yeah, absolutely. We our clients are 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 looking at an office experience to 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 have the car of inviting or getting our employees back to the office, they've got to have an experience. And the pandemic's taught us that, you know, we can work from home effectively and efficiently. Common theme moving forward for, for, for businesses that we are dealing with, no matter what industry it is, is to create an environment that's agile, responsive to their team's needs, but, you know, simultaneously creates a belonging in the, in the organisation, having you know, a brilliant, great workspace has its benefits, but only if it's truly serving the needs of the employees who who are working in it. Now, uh, Andy, before I move to our next guest, you've heard what Julian had to say, very respected economist, giving us a snapshot of how he saw the economy. What are your big challenges in business at the moment in respect of some of the points that Julian was making? Yeah, well, businesses are, are, are taking their time to try and recover from the pandemic. Um, you know, the economy suggests that, that people and, and leaders in, in our client businesses are still unsure on how that and how they move forward. So spending money to to reimagine their, their, their workplace and have a strategy to, to refine the workplace experience costs money. And and you know we're 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 looking at you know they're talking about about um, you know financially being being really real issues and moving forward with that. That's why that's one of the reasons why businesses are 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 slow in making those changes. 
And what about your own business? You heard uh, Julian talking with me about unemployment and, and the fact that there are quite a lot of people who are not in the workplace who could, if they chose to be, be in the workplace. Are you having uh, skills, uh, well, uh, staff recruitment issues, as, as many businesses are? We are, uh, maybe not to the certain extent of, of, of other businesses. We have, we have, as a business itself, we're quite long-standing. We've got a, a, a lot of, a, a, we don't have a lot of high turnover of staff. Uh, we have a lot of uh, staff who have been with us for a, for a number of years. So I don't think we have suffered a great deal uh, uh, in, in, you know, in consideration with other, with other industries. Um, we were quite active during the pandemic. We we worked with a lot of a lot of the uh, the private sector um, organisations as well as the public sector who were really active during that. So we didn't lose a lot of staff during the pandemic, which allowed us to to bounce out of it and and still have that that real good solid skill set to allow us to carry on operating. Martin Anderson from Lemon Contact Centres. You've run these call centres, very impressive operation, very slick, lots of technology. But what about the people element? The turnover, is it stable, high? Do you want more people? Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenge post-pandemic in recruitment, no doubt. Um, it is getting easier. I would say there have been certainly harder times in, in the last sort of six months a year to actually to actually recruit. So the, it, the pressure's slightly off, but it is still hard. And there's, there's a big gap in the economy, the lack of resource out there. We talked about the, you know, the hidden unemployment, the over 50s, etc. How do you use technology to circumnavigate that to increase productivity? So. It, that challenge isn't going away, but for businesses like mine, it creates an opportunity because one of the things we do is support other businesses with different projects, uh, providing them resource to, to, to fulfill those, those outbound or inbound um, campaigns where they may be struggling themselves to, to recruit directly. That's, absolutely. Where there's a problem, there's always an opportunity. Indeed. Now, Martin, when it comes to other elements of the economy, you heard uh, Julian talking about inflation, for mm. instance. Are you finding inflationary pressures in your business? I, I, I see it in mine quite often on wages and staff wages. And that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, obviously we have the, the, the gas or the electric costs in our, in our regard, which, which, which are a pressure. But, but the biggest thing, to, to some extent, is the pressure on wages, you know, the increases that are coming through in April in, in the national living wage, which is, which is a big increase. And it's not just about that entry level wage into the business, because being a contact centre, we do have people enter on that wage, but it's everyone else has stepped above it. So it causes it causes sorry a, a, an increase in wages across the board. Otherwise, you're getting a narrowing depending on the different mm. skill sets. So the pressure goes right through. So as a business, the biggest increase, our biggest bill is our wage bill, and the biggest increase we're going to see is our wages, which then goes back to the, 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 the thing that Julian was saying at the beginning. It can actually then feed back into inflation, which 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 makes life difficult. I know Julian mentioned about the you know the, there's a there's a drawdown in the amount of money in the economy, which, which is absolutely correct. But it's interesting to note as well. I suppose a lot of the economy is not driven per se by money, but by credit available. So as we're seeing that reduction in credit, I guess that will also Im impact on the uh, on the inflation rates. On the wage conversation, at the moment, there's a lot of uh, public airing of the public sector wage disputes mm. that are going on. And mm. you're seeing the salaries of teachers, the salaries of nurses published, and you're seeing uh, a claim by the public sector unions that their pay rises are less than the private sector pay rises. 
probably true, not disputing those figures. But I had a, a, a conversation with one of my people the other day who was commenting on the pension contributions that some of the public sector mm -hmm. receive. Mm -hmm. Now, I, in the private sector, as a small business, make the legal required mm -hmm. pension contribution. But compared to, I think it's 23% for, uh, mm -hmm. for teachers mm -hmm. and a considerable amount for nurses, those packages uh, are considerably more generous mm -hmm. on pensions. Mm -hmm. you no, know, they are. They're absolutely phenomenal, and the teachers one in particular. But it is hard as being an employer, like you said, with 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 the the pressures on on, on the inflation and on on wanting to give your staff a, a good mm -hmm. wage and an increase that that tries to keep up with inflation. But when you see the what's going on uh, right now with the strikes and some of the wage demands, I mean. It, it, some of the, the demands, 10, 15, 20% of things that you're seeing, it, to me, it's like a whole different world. How as a business can we, as a, as a private business, increase our wages by that amount without having a massive impact on our, on, on our price of our product, which is gonna impact our, our clients as well. It, we, it's making, with my industry as well, it's, it's a global world now. So we're competing with Eastern Europe, we're competing with, with South Africa. I can go into a, a presentation I'm putting my, my price out there, but the South African market is able to come in at a price which is less than our minimum wage. Yeah, and it's call centers are English speaking. There's no time difference, particularly an hour or so. Mm. We're moving south. It's, it, it makes competing in a more globalized market, particularly in the retail sector, almost impossible. Very interesting. Julian, let's pick up with you. Let's give you the last word on this. This differential between, you see the, the news clips where the public sector unions are saying, well, we're, we've got average wage increases of 3%, the private sector 7%. That is apples and pears when you put the pensions in, isn't it? That, I mean, <clears throat> that's right. I think it's important to distinguish between you know rates of change, you know, what the size of the pay increases are, uh, and the starting point. So it's certainly true that public sector wages have gone up by a lot less than those in the private sector for most of the last 10 years or so. Um, but the level of pay in the public sector is still relatively high. Uh, and it's even higher if you factor in not just things like you know pension contributions, but if you allow also for things that are harder to put numbers on, like like job security. So you know job security is typically a lot higher in the public sector than it is in the in the private sector. So I think in general, it's pretty hard to say that the you know, public sector workers as a group are systematically underpaid. Um, I think if I were advising the government, I'd, I'd try and say, well, look at this like you would if you were a private sector employer. So if there are particular areas where you have problems of recruitment and, and retention. So, you know, certain types of nurses with certain qualifications or, you know, teachers of particular subjects like mathematics, then maybe give them a, a bigger pay increase. But I think the, the argument for a big inflation busting pay increase across the board in the public sector is actually remarkably weak. Yeah. Well, look, I'm going to leave it there. We've had a, a good airing. Andy, thank you for joining us. Martin, thank you. Julian, as ever, a very good explanation of where you see the economy. Uh, thank you for joining us on this edition of Business Unmuted. We'll be back at the same time, same place next week.